Good morning and welcome to a Workers' Power for Triple Z and you're with uh, Bill and Jackson and uh, we're, um, yeah, well, sorry, we're without Hannah today and I'm a little bit lost without, without having her here and uh, um, the like, so uh, we'll... Uh, We'll push along anyhow, and uh, um, so today on the show we've got plenty of workers' actions. Uh, um, yeah, we've got uh, we've got a guest lined up, which Hannah has done for us. Uh, we've got someone from the health services union coming on to have a chat with us about the uh, struggle in the aged care industry, and of course, uh, you know, workers' action and the world famous scallywag of the week. But uh, first off, uh, as always, uh, we acknowledge the uh, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast, the Yuggera and Aturabul people. This land was stolen, never ceded. We pay our respect to Elders, past, present and emerging. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people in their struggle for recognition, reparation and land rights. Right on. And... um, so as always, we, uh, we we talk about First Nations workers action here on the first sh- uh, on the show first. And good morning, Jackson. Hello. Good morning. Uh, you want to go to the story then? Yeah, and uh, you've got uh, Aboriginal prisoners uh, lodge legal challenge against uh, use of prolonged solitary confinement by Shahi Shani. Wellington from the NITV News. Yes. Um, So the Western Australia Department of Justice could continue with a policy that allows it to isolate prisoners for 23 hours a day without the the isolation technically being torture under international standards due to terminology surrounding the definition of solitary confinement. Last month, lawyers for three Aboriginal prisoners with mental health or physical disabilities successfully lodged a Supreme Court challenge on the basis that the practice contravened the WA Prisons Act after family members expressed concerns for their well-being. Two of the men had allegedly been alone, had been held alone for 23 hours a day for almost two months following a serious incident in June. The state's own legislation only allows only allows confinement of up to 30 days consecutively, but under WA Corrective Services' disruptive prisoner policy, inmates deemed to neg- negatively influence other prisoners could be held in isolation for 23 hours a day for up to two months. Rule 44 of the UN Standard Minimum Rule for the Treatment of Prisoners defines solitary confinement as the confinement of prisoners for 22 hours or more a day without meaningful human contact. UN Standards also classifies prolonged solitary confinement in excess of 15 consecutive days as torture. While the department has announced it will now review the policy and in line with those powers is no longer confining prisoners until the process is complete, the Supreme Court case has highlighted a systemic issue around mistreatment. The disruptive prisoner policy was introduced mid-2019 and has since been subject to criticism by the state's independent watchdog, the WA Office of the Inspector of Custodial Services. Human rights representatives, including the international body Human Rights Watch, have called for the WA government to scrap the use of solitary confinement inside prisons completely. Noongar woman and lawyer Dr. Hannah McGlade said a recent visit to the prisons revealed there are allegedly more people being infected than she first thought. One man has actually been held in so- solitary isolation for more for seven months now, she said. He and the others no doubt have suffered health implications or disorders, potentially as a result of this inhumane cruel treatment towards them. We know that Aboriginal people in the criminal justice system experience racial profiling and racism at every stage, and I have no doubt that this practice is being used against Aboriginal prisoners in a harsh and unfair manner, Dr. McGlade said. Uh, Dr. McGlade has pledged to take the cruel and inhumane treatment to the UN Human Rights Committee. Western Australia has the highest imprisonment rate of Aboriginal people in Australia, and in the past three months, three Aboriginal men have died in the state's prisons. 
So what they're doing here is clearly violating international human rights law standards on the treatment of prisoners, and they are, I believe, creating further disability on the part of on the on the part already of three vulnerable young Aboriginal men. She said, "We don't accept that you can abuse Aboriginal people this way." The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has linked social isolation with depression, emotional distress, and premature death. The court proceedings against the state ins- included statements from three 26-year-old Aboriginal men, some detailing their struggles with poor mental health. I suffer from depression and take medication for that, said a man who claimed to have been in solitary confinement for 52 continuous days. I have not had good thoughts in my head in solitary confinement. A second prisoner said he had sought help from, the st- from staff at Casuarina Prison, a maximum security facility south of Perth. I do not know if I can do another 28 days in solitary. I asked the senior officer at Casuarina a number of times to see a mental health officer, and they said no, he said. Oh, I'm, I'm, I was going to say great story. It's not a great story, but it's it's great that uh, we, we've, we're reporting on the story, I think. And uh, what, what uh, part of the story did you just read out you reckon uh, comes under the term rehabilitation <laughs> absolutely nothing fair income yeah this is just modern torture yeah. and I, it's shocking that we still practice it at all how, how can how can these uh, comrades be expected to to live even just the facts that we've got in this sheet right uh, confinement for 52 days, uh, confinement for... I can't do another 28 days. I, 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 I don't know about you, Jackson, but on me, if I, if I was to go 28 days in solitary and not talk to anyone, I think it would have a huge impact on my life for the rest of my life. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's... How, how can... How, you know, how can rehabilitation in any way be considered in as part of this, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it is at all. Like, this is just sadistic politicians and prison guards wanting to take it out on poor Aboriginal people. And, like, that's the reality of the world we live in. It's a world where we torture people. Yeah, this is another perfect reason why we say Black Lives Matter is because, you know, it's... uh um, they're the ones who are, who, who are suffering, you know? Yeah. And obviously when it comes to prisoners, it's not just Aboriginal people, but even though it majority affects them, this is like everyone in prison of, will often get subject to this sort of treatment and it's terrible. Well, yeah. Oh, look, I'm really glad that we're reporting on it. I'm glad that you're listening to it, uh, comrades at home. Um, so that we're aware of, uh, of, of what's going on um, yeah. and the cruel and the humane treatment uh, that is uh, being suffered by our, our First Nation comrades. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. We've got a, um, another one here. Murren Bridge Aboriginal Community enacts self-imposed lockdown following Victorian visitors. Yes, so uh, this is another um, Aboriginal community protecting themselves like the story we had last week. More than 70 residents have been asked to remain within a central western New South Wales Aboriginal community to prevent a potential coronavirus outbreak after a person from a Melbourne hotspot visited the community. The Myron Bridge community, located around a two-hours drive west of Parks, was asked to lock down for 14 days by the local Aboriginal Land Council. The visitor, who reportedly arrived with a permit, is now isolating after testing negative to COVID-19 on Monday. The New South Wales and Victorian border has been closed since the middle of last month, with entry to Victorians extremely limited to specific circumstances such as critical services or providing primary care. A post on the Murren Bridge Local Aboriginal Land Council Facebook page called for anyone who had recently left and returned to the community to self-isolate until further notice. Being a small Aboriginal community, we are more at risk due to the chronic diseases we face. Please be responsible, the post read. We will let everyone know when it is safe for the community members to go about their business. Arrangements have been made for food deliveries or medical needs. 
Yeah, good stuff. And uh, uh, the uh, the uh, examples that we've been providing, uh, I found out uh, on listening to uh, a very informative show on 4ZZZ yesterday. Now, I'm pretty sure it was only uh, human uh, yesterday. Um, and and they, they, they had... Um, Look, I didn't get the name in the book. I should have done more research. But anyhow, great for Triple Z show. And they were talking about how um, First Nations uh, um, uh, people here here in uh, in Australia um, have locked down themselves and 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 stood up for themselves in like in this example of of not letting outsiders in. And and what this has created is um, there have been the least. Uh, impacted um, uh, um, for, uh, a traditional um, or First Nations um, uh, people to be at least impacted around the world hmm. because because uh, they've done it for themselves. That, that's my uh, interpretation of it because, you know, they've, they've empowered themselves. They've stood up, they've fought back and said, no. Yeah, no. and this sort of thing just goes to show that when you build up community and you create these sort of connections between people, you don't really need a government who will punish you if you do the wrong thing because you can work together and you can manage things for yourself and keep yourself safe and you don't get situations like I think I saw something in Victoria that where um, a woman who had got a permit to not wear a mask was confronted by police and beaten up, like just attacked by the police for uh, not wearing a mask. And like that sort of thing doesn't happen when a community uh, basically runs itself. And uh, now it's time for Agitate, Educate and Organise. We haven't got really that much in either. Have you got anything exciting to report? Uh, No, not really. No, no, no. Well, yeah, we've all been busy with our our normal lives. But what I wanted to do here is I'm going to throw to another another track. And uh, it's what I wanted to highlight in this section here I was thinking during the week but I didn't get anything prepared but what I wanted to talk about is uh, the fascist killing machines alright yeah well, I've, I look I've just got uh, Jackson's attention now what I want to talk about is musicians uh, standing up and getting involved in um, uh, struggles all around the place and uh, um, it, oh, is, okay. it, it is enthusing to see that um uh, that that um, Brisbane local, a lot of Brisbane local bands are getting behind the uh, Kangaroo Point struggle, oh, yeah. and and one of those is is a, a, a there's been a gig and uh, I, I missed out on tickets. I found I was going to I was going to promo the event today and and, and help them sell it out, but they've already helped themselves and they've already sold out a. Um, uh, there's already been one that's. Uh, uh, um, uh, Featuring the band that we're, I'm going to play, Lulu, um, and uh, it's just uh, yeah, it's sensational that um, you know arts and uh, politics are coming together, and uh, you always like that type of stuff, don't you, com- comrade? <laughs> For sure. For sure. I mean, it's sort of been a um, a running thing with. Ever, with music in general, it's always intersected with politics. That's right. That's right. The guitar is the uh, is a fascist killing machine, isn't it? <laughs> you know. Well, look, yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we're we're go- so shout out to Lulu. Now, I think Lulu. I'm pretty sure Lulu were uh, band subscribers too. So uh, to Four Triple Z. So and uh, now uh, we're um, joined on the phone by uh, Lauren. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, um, HSU New South Wales helped uh, aged care uh, workers uh, secure a significant win last week. Uh, Could you uh, please give us a rundown on what happened? For sure. So uh, early last year, one of our union delegates, uh, she noticed an anomaly in her payslip regarding uh, annual leave accrual and she took it to a local uh, union organiser and said... I think there's there's something wrong here. Together they approached local management uh, and uh, thinking that they were going to get a, you know, a, a small bit of um, back pay for the local members there. What, uh, what they were able to uncover was a, a systematic underpaying of workers uh, 
over a period of six years. So they, uh, these members worked for Uniting Aged Care, which is one of the, well, it's the biggest provider in New South Wales of um, residential aged care. And the, the underpayments uh, in total came to a, um, a value of $3.3 million that were owed to workers over that period. So it's a significant amount of money that people had been underpaid. Right on. And, uh, yeah, so uh, how might uh, this outcome influence other workers in the sector? Well, well, one, we're hoping that everyone is um, checking their pay slips to make sure that they're getting what they're entitled to. Uh, but, you know, our members are run off their feet. They work, um, you know, very hard and sometimes at multiple jobs because the pay in aged care is so, so low. What we would hope is that employers... Um, do the right thing from the start. Uh, you know, it's six years of underpayment. It's just not acceptable. Like, these are workers who live paycheck to paycheck and it shouldn't be up to them to keep their employers um, honest. Employers should be paying the right thing from the start. But what we do hope is that it's, it's set, um, set some of these employers to go and look at their own, ish, at their own payroll uh, and uh, getting our members to go and look at their own pay slips. Right, and uh, I think we skipped a question there, but what actually was the outcome? Did you win all your back pay? So, yeah, it was... uh, So, workers, both current and former employees of Uniting, were paid their entitlements. So, it's over 9,500 workers in total were uh, owed money and that money is slowly but surely getting paid out to them you know it went and went for some of these workers um, i think the biggest tally we've heard is one worker was owed twelve thousand dollars in back pay now when you earn 22 dollars an hour that's a huge amount of money to come to you and we're glad it's back with uh, workers uh, but it shouldn't have taken uh, a delegate looking at a pay slip to realize that that much money was owed to people but it is a good outcome we're glad that it's back with the people who deserve it uh, uh, and finally that they're getting paid what they're owed. And um, how did you manage to win this outcome? Was it a court battle or was there any um, workers' action on the shop floor? Sorry, you dropped in and out there again. Uh, it, 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 can you repeat the question? Sorry. Um, so how did you manage to win this outcome? Was it just a simple court battle or was there, like, workers' action on the shop floor, something like that? So... What started with it was our member who uh, approached local management. Uh, that triggered Uniting to go and do a review of her pay. Uh, we then expanded the claim to all of the members on that particular work site, that, with that facility. When, uh, when Uniting did an analysis of those workers, it was identified that there was a systematic issue and that they then instigated a review of all of their payroll. Uniting then self-reported to the Fair Work Ombudsman. Uh, They dobbed themselves in, knowing that this was going to be an issue for them. Uh, And the Ombudsman then monitored uh, the back pay program. And part of that uh, settlement, if you like, with the Fair Work Ombudsman saw them have to make a public announcement of... Uh, the amount owing and the number of employees who were entitled to that that back pay. Um, because part of the issue is because it's it's been so many years, there are so many employees who no longer work there who are owed money and Uniting has to try very hard now to find all of those workers and give them the money they're entitled to. Right on. Now, um, now the aged care sector, it's a pretty hot topic at the moment, you know, with, with a lot of issues being brought to light. Uh, what, what do you see these issues stemming from? Is there an underlying, uh, um, uh, 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 an underlying overriding issue that, uh, 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 thing that's causing these issues? Absolutely. Uh, there has been a chronic underfunding of aged care for years now. In fact, money has been taken out of the sector uh, when it was needed the most. So for years and years, organisations have been running on uh, less money to provide care. And part of the issue, though, is also that the money that it does go into uh, into aged care, no one knows where it goes. There's no transparency of that funding. So we've seen examples uh, in Victoria where aged care... Uh, uh, owners, so owners of aged care facilities are driving around in Maseratis. Like, that is just a, an appalling outcome when you think of the care 
uh, that's taking place in those facilities and it, it is a real problem. So we've had years of chronic underfunding and what that leads to is understaffing uh, and understaffing increases the workload for those workers there. It increases the number of injuries that aged care workers uh, incur at work. And there's also, it means that workers are undervalued. So our members, carers, cleaners, catering staff, provide care to the most vulnerable in our communities. And the base rate for a carer in aged care is $21.96 an hour. I mean, that's just, you know, appalling by anyone's standards. But given the work that they're required to do and the services that they need to provide, they need to be valued properly. So, yeah, there's years of underfunding, transparency of funding that have led to these outcomes in aged care. Yeah, fantastic response. And uh, now, uh, just a little bit of history on our show here at uh, Workers Power, Lauren. We, we have a weekly award at the end of the show we call the Scallywag of the Week. And it generally is awarded to, you know, some grub of a boss who's ripping off his workers. But I'll tell you what, a, a, an aged care um, a, a director or whatever it is driving around with a Maserati, that definitely award, uh, deserves a scallywag shout-out, I think. What a, what a scallywag. I, I would uh, agree with you there. I don't think that anyone in our community believes that that is a reasonable place for money that's supposed to go to um, vulnerable residents to end up. Uh, yeah. And the Maserati is not the only car that he owns, and uh, sickeningly. So, Scallywag, uh, absolutely. Yeah, you say no one knows where the money goes, but it seems pretty clear from this. It all goes to the bosses. Yeah. So, so um, what what kind of a reform needs to come about to fix this? So we need a couple of things. We need a huge investment in aged care, um, significant growth in the funding that comes into aged care, but that needs to be transparent. We need to know that every dollar that comes into the aged care sector is spent on care and doesn't go to Maseratis. So we need that big investment of funds, transparency of funding. But we also need to properly value the workforce. So that means that we deliver decent wage increases for carers and we make sure that they've got good, secure jobs because if you get those two things right, you will absolutely improve the quality of care for residents. So it's a whole picture and we need all politicians to come on board with this. We need to make sure that, you know, that... We get this change now. We can't wait any longer in aged care for reform. It needs to happen yesterday. Now, uh, recently with the whole COVID outbreak in Victoria, which has been seriously linked to aged care, one um, big part of that has been that um, the, the outbreaks are almost entirely in the private sector and there has been almost no cases reported in the public sector. Does nationalisation of the aged care industry play a part in your, in your, in like reforms that need to happen? I think it's a really good question and one that we should explore. I suppose my only reservation is that I don't trust um, governments at the moment of either persuasion or any persuasion to do the right thing. They've had years to do it, and I'd be reluctant to put total control in their hands but having said that when you look at the alternative the Maserati drivers you kind of lost you know where do we turn ultimately as long as every dollar is spent in aged care that's the outcome we see is the federal government the best provider of that well if they step up now and they take control and they actually own uh, the problems and take responsibility then maybe there's an argument for that uh, I just, I'm just, it's a sad situation where you say that you can't trust the government to do the right thing because they currently aren't. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah we're stuck between a rock and a hard place there. But uh, uh, yeah, well, uh, we'd like to think that uh, the unions should be more involved in running things. Oh, uh, yeah. Let's talk about workers' ownership of HK, maybe. <laughs> We, we certainly will. If you look at the uniting experience where you've got good union delegates on the ground, we do make sure that uh, people are paid appropriately and that there is uh, that companies, 
organisations, governments are held to account. We believe that this sector needs everyone working together, unions, union members, employers, governments, to get the best outcome for our elderly Australians, clearly the most vulnerable uh, in our community. Yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, we talk about that a lot. And the only way that we're going to achieve uh, real fundamental change is if we uh, collectivise in the workplace. That's uh, one of the big things we talk about here on the show. Um, and uh, so is there a, a, a way that uh, listeners, so someone not in the industry or, you know, our comrades listening at home, um, how, can, how can they get in and, and support the aged care industry? Well, uh, funnily enough, we've got uh, a day coming up on the 2nd of September. Uh, for years past, it was called Thank You for Working in Aged Care Day. To be honest, we've shifted that because thank you isn't enough anymore. Uh, so on the 2nd of September, we'd ask that uh, the community, when there's, they can find our, um, our you know, social media on this, can put a message out of support for aged care workers, acknowledging the work that they do, but also standing with us to fight for something better. Because at the moment, and I'll say it again, thank you is not enough. We need uh, systematic uh, change in the sector. We need proper valuing of the work. We need that to be recognised. So uh, we might send you something across about the 2nd of September so you can do a bit of a shout-out on your show. Yeah, I was going to mention that. We, we will, uh, we've got two shows in between now and then. We'll, we'll mention it in both of them, I think. Brilliant. Um, that would be fantastic. So that, that kind of answers the, the, the question of how do uh, people find out more about uh, uh, HSU themselves. Uh, uh, we, we'll share that on uh, social media and, and the like. Uh, you can get that through our Workers' Power uh, uh, Facebook page. But uh, I can't let you go without asking the most important question of all. How can someone, an aged care worker, join the HSU? You go to uh, hsu.asn.au and you can join online immediately there uh, and we'll be there to support you. If, if using the computer isn't the easiest thing for you, uh, the number to call is 1300 478 679 and uh, we'll be there to help. Well, th- thank you so much for coming on the show, Lauren. It's uh, really and, appreciated. Um, just yeah. before we yeah. let you go, is there anything else you want to say? Um, really, I, I just want to say we, we're really thinking of all of the workers, the families, uh, the residents in Victoria right now. It is a really scary time. Uh, and, and we are, you know, the one thing I will point out is that the, we had our first outbreak of COVID in aged care on the 3rd of March and this federal government still hasn't got a proper plan in place for aged care and that is that is heartbreaking. We are thinking of all of our comrades down there uh, every day and we are hoping for the best for them. Right. Oh, well, thank thank you very much, and uh, we've covered yeah we've covered everything that we can, and uh, uh, we will keep uh, our comrades uh, up here at Four Triple Z up to date with uh, what's happening. So once again, thank you so much for for coming on, Lauren from the uh, Health Services Union. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Right. So uh, we'll we'll move on to some uh, workers' action now, and. Uh, um, Jackson, you want to talk about, and I, I do too, we want to talk about the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Yeah, so this is something that I cannot believe we didn't cover last week because it is really cool. So this time, this story is uh, by Rachel Conahan and it's from Junkie. Australia is in a recession. There are more people looking for work than ever in a shrinking pool of jobs. The only thing taking our minds off the economic crisis is the health crisis. Against this rosy backdrop, last week the government reintroduced mutual obligations for people on JobSeeker and other welfare payments, forcing them to start applying for jobs that quite simply aren't there. As a result of this, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union has encouraged recipients to go on strike by refusing to engage with job agencies who they say are profiting off people's poverty. 
The government has done everything throughout this whole crisis to protect this industry that is renowned for bullying and harming people, and it's increased the amount of money that the industry is getting and at the same time giving that industry more certainty than they've given the people who've lost their jobs. AUW spokesperson Kristen O'Connell said. The union is reassuring people that their payments will not be cut if they strike. But they say Employment Minister Michaelia Cash is deliberately confusing people about this. The information being put out by the government and the department and the job agencies themselves is designed to coerce people and make them believe they will be penalised when they won't, Kristen said. The AUWU is also calling for mutual obligations to be suspended until December 31st, but the government isn't budging, with Senator Cash last week calling the strike bizarre and claiming that the AUWU is trying to prevent people from finding work. But the AUWU is having none of that. They say they're only trying to empower people that have been bullied by job agencies and would never tell people to turn down work that's actually suitable for them. The minister, the minister really is in really bad faith claiming we've been putting people at risk and she knows that that's not true because we've had confirmation from the minister's office. Job, in, job agencies at the moment have no power to impose a penalty, Kristen said. The only exception is if you're offered work. The government can cut off your payment if you refuse to attend a job interview or refuse a suitable job without a valid reason unless you're in Victoria, which is exempt. To learn more about how to participate in the strike, go to auwu.substack.com and if you want to show solidarity, you can spread the word, sign a petition and join the AUWU as a solidarity member. Hold on, yeah, good stuff. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm surprised. And we nearly forgot it again this week. I'm glad uh, you're on board. Uh, you're, 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 you're on the... <laughs> You're on the ball. Um, so yeah, yeah, great, uh, great action with the um, by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and um, I, I want to say, watch this space because there's uh, we we've got uh, up to September. There's going to or we're. Oh, no, we're not in September yet, but we're very close. There's a lot of action being organised uh, in the lead-up to uh, Anti-Poverty Week and, and the like. So, uh, yeah, good on the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, uh, you know, standing up and fighting back uh, for, well, yeah, <laughs> some of the most oppressed uh, um, people in our country, you know. So, uh, yeah, good on them. Uh, a subscriber, uh, Pauline, has, um, has uh, contributed some feedback in regards to um, the, the interview with Lauren. And um, that feedback goes like this. Uh, to secure a place in an aged care home, you have to have a refundable accommodation deposit. My mum's was $400,000 plus daily's costs. Do the math. Even, I'll go this way. Even res, uh, uh, ten residents equates to four million dollars in their accounts. Holy shit! Yeah, most, most places have at least twenty. It's disgusting. Pauline says, care workers are paid so little and stretched to the limit. It needs to change now. So uh, thank you for that feedback, Pauline. And uh, um, right, uh, we, we better get into uh, some workers' action. We've got a fair bit to report here. And uh, uh, first off, something from the Australian Manufacturer and Workers Union, Jackson. Yeah, so the operators of Tasmania's Cadbury factory have won their bid to cut personal leave for shift workers. Grubs. In a ruling which could have implications for other Australian workers. The workers who took their claim for paid personal and carers leave entitlements to the high work high court work three three 12-hour shifts a week. A year ago, two Cadbury workers won a federal court case arguing that because they worked 12-hour shifts, their 10 days of personal leave should be paid at 12 hours a day. The company had argued it was entitled to pay the rate at only 7.6 hours. Cadbury... Cadbury owners Mondelez International took the case to the High Court. It has ruled the entitlement centred around two traditional weeks and since the Cadbury workers had worked only three long shifts a week, they were entitled to six days of paid personal and carers leave. 
it has ruled the entitlement centred centered around two traditional weeks. Uh, oh, sorry, that's a repeat. The uh, Australian Manufacturers Workers Union, representing the factory shift workers, said the decision was a huge blow and would have implications for other Australian shift workers. The AMWU said COVID-19 had shown the importance of personal leave. State Secretary John Short wants the federal government to legislate that all workers get 10 days paid leave. Workers shouldn't be paid less because they're having a sick day. They should be paid the same number of hours that they should have been paid in sick leave, and they should receive that on 10 occasions a year and be here at Workers' Power. I think they should get even more leave than that. Oh, yeah, too right. And now, uh, this. I think the story kind of says it all, but to, to sum it up, you know, it's uh, during this pandemic, you don't want to be discouraging. Um, workers to be taking personal leave. Yeah, that's just a you recipe know? for disaster. But you don't want uh, workers to be choosing between eating <laughs> and um, resting. You know, like it's like if some of these workers, are, I'm I'm sure that if so, twelve hours a day they generally work and they they're, they're crook, right? And then they're only going to get seven point six hours. So what's that? Say four hours of pay. Hmm. That's a lot of money for me. You know, four hours of my... You take four hours of my weekly income off me. You know, like, the, 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 yeah, well, the kids won't be doing anything special that week, I can tell you, you know. It's like, uh, you know, it's four... That's, that's, you know, when you're talking, you know, 100 bucks, you know, four hours, about 100 bucks, you know, whatever, 80 to 100, 80 to 120 bucks. When, when, when you're, um, when you've got kids, that... That, that's the difference between extras and non-extras. Hmm. That's the difference between kids getting shoes and kids not getting new shoes when they need them. So, um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, this a terrible decision, but, um, yeah, we should move on or otherwise I'll, I'll, I'll be cranky for, <laughs> for the rest of the day. Yeah, and even when it comes to, like, just when you're not sick and you just want to take a day off, people should be able to do that. Like, that is a right that people should have and they should be able to do that and be able to continue to feed them and their children. It shouldn't be costing you 100 bucks to have a sick day. So that's the, 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 the brunt of it. Right, uh, well, oh, look, you've got a story from one of our uh, comrades. A shout-out to Alex Bainbridge uh, from Green Left Weekly. And he's uh, got, we've got a refugee solidarity update. Yes, so this is about the um, protests that happened on Saturday. So hundreds of refugee rights activists stared down police intimidation to protest the continued detention of refugees outside the Kangaroo Point Detention Centre on August 15th. They called for the refugees inside the hotel prison to be allowed out on day release, a humane first step. Protesters had planned to hold a sit-in on the Story Bridge if this demand was not met, but a campaign of intimidation and threats of violence from Queensland police meant this was not possible. A statement from Refugee Solidarity Mianjin said, We've faced the full force of a state desperately trying to silence dissent. Some protesters have been raided during the middle of the night, others haven't been home since last week, and the Attorney General has used the court to get injunctions against several people forbidding them from going. The state has become obsessed with stopping this protest from going ahead. We expect any attempt to sit down on the bridge to be met with large police presence, including the use of chemical weapons and mounted police. With all this in mind, we don't think we can take the bridge as initially planned. It feels strange to announce publicly that we went up against the state and we lost. There's the urge to somehow spin it as a positive, as a win, like we always planned this. But some Language warning. <laughs> but some things are just fucked. The risk of protests spre- spreading COVID-19 was one of the excuses the government gave to say the protests must not go ahead. However, as speakers at the rally pointed out a football game with a much with much larger numbers in a confined space was going ahead on that same day without police harassment yeah for shame refugee rights activists defied intimidation to march from nearby raymond park to the kangaroo point motel come prison uh police refused to liaise with the organizers about the march logistics who went out of their way to avoid a confrontation nevertheless there were six arrests before the end of the day 
Police ended up blocking the road for a considerable time using the excuse that they had to prevent protesters from blocking the road. (laughs) (laughs) Refugees who spoke to the rally remotely thanked everyone for coming out to support them. They also pointed out that the government was directed against Australian citizens, not just refugees. Quote, Today, if you don't stand for refugees, tomorrow you'll have to stand for yourselves, one said. At one moment, there was a call and response from the refugees inside to the protesters outside. Eight years is enough. I can't breathe. Please help. A permanent blockade slash vigil is being organized at the site and a peaceful march occurred this morning to protest federal government moves to send refugees and anyone to Christmas Island. Yeah, right. I was going. I, I was going to mention that there was a protest uh, in the city this morning. Um, we, I, I, I've been too busy working on this to uh, to give any updates. But I'm sure that uh, if you head to Refugee Action Collective, that's that's the no, name that's of it. that's the other one. This is Refugee Solidarity Brisbane slash Mianjin. Plus, right. I think this particular one was also organised by Jonathan Shree. Okay, all right. Well, so the, yeah, there was. Um, yeah, I'm sure there'll be stuff on their uh, social media and the like. Um, right, so uh, oh, look, we've got one one more little story. Do you want to work for for uh, workers power a uh, workers action uh, across the. Uh, uh, continent for TWNWA. Yes. In May, Clive Palmer was denied entry to Western Australia after the McGowan government shut the borders the previous month to all but those deemed essential travellers. What a, what a grubby is. He, <laughs> <laughs> he believed he was denied entry to WA for particular for political reasons and said he has valid reasons for wanting to visit the state. Through his mi- company, Mineral. Mineralogy Mineralogy, that's not a well written word (laughs) Palmer owns the lease over the Sino-Iron project at Cape Preston in the Pilbara which is owned, operated by Chinese company Citic Pacific Mr Palmer won a lengthy court battle with Citic Pacific in 2018 that allowed him to reap hundreds of millions of dollars in royalty annually from the Chinese company having now challenged the border closure in federal court palmer hasn't won himself any friends in response the transport workers are threatening to blockade clive's mine the twu has been inundated with messages from transport workers who want to refuse to load trucks and refuse to deliver to clive's mine palmer wants to infect wa by opening the borders for his own selfish greed on top of that he wants to rob every man woman and child baby and other people by suing the state for $30 billion. What a scallywag. Now, I want to be careful here because he loves his lawyers, Clive Palmer. <laughs> but just uh, looking at, just just using the facts from that story, through his company, Mineralogy, Palmer owns the lease. And, uh, and then it's operated by Chinese company Citic Pacific. Um, the way I read into that, that Palmer does nothing and gets paid for it. <laughs> he got in early, got the lease, uh, got yeah. got the rights to mine it, and then got someone else to mine it and just sits <laughs> back and, and cashes in. Well, that's capitalism for you. Fair dinkum. This guy, he just, he, he's... Um, yeah, his capitalism knows no boundaries at all borders. <laughs> ha, ha, oh, we've got a good pun in there. Yeah. His capitalism knows no borders, and uh, he, he, he thinks he's, he's well within his rights to sue the state for $30 billion, um, uh, from what I'm hearing, essentially sending WA bankrupt. It, it would send the state bankrupt. If he wins... You know, they're having to change legislation because they're, they're just worried that, that he's going to win and they're going to be broke. <laughs> how, how can one person, you know, take down a state like that? It's, uh, you know, like, a, yes, as we always say, it's it's capitalism's fault, isn't it? Mm. You know, like, that he's just been a, 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 a straight-out scallywag and, uh, um, yes, uh, exploiting the land and, and, and the state. But yeah. the uh, potential for a strike against this mine, workers refusing to transport to it, is pretty exciting. Like, even if he wins that court case, he might not even be able to go ahead with running this mine. 
Yeah, what a scallywag. Right, so, well, uh, we move on to, and we, we head far afield. We want to uh, give you a, a, a good picture of uh, workers uh, standing up and fighting back uh, all around the world, and this is our section called International Workers Action. All right, oh, this title's great. It's got one of my favourite words in there. Workers strike against a despot in Belarus. I was hoping we'd cover something to do with Belarus, so uh, good stuff. And this uh, uh, comes from Global Voices, Jackson. Yes, so taking to the streets in Belarus today is a brave thing to do. Riot police have used extreme violence against citizens, detaining over 6,000 people. Those citizens are protesting an attempt by longtime President Alexander Lukashenko, who has ruled the country since 1994, to remain in power for a sixth term after a dubious presidential election on August 9th. They refused to accept that Lukashenko received, as official figures have it, 80% of the vote, compared to just 9% for his challenger, Svetlana Sikhanshukaya. I'm just going to say Sikanshakaya, yes, that, that's easy to pronounce, <laughs> who has since fled to neighbouring Lithuania. At least two people have died, the detention centres are full, and there are credible accusations of torture and mistreatment. Joining a picket line is also a brave thing to do in Belarus, which has strict laws constraining industrial action. The country essentially has no guarantee of labour rights, noted the International Trade Union Confederation in a recent statement on the turmoil. But Belarusian workers are not deterred. The first unrest began on August 10th at the immense metallurgical works in the town of Zloven. At they say, that same day, a call went out on the My Country Belarus Telegram channel urging workers to demand that their bosses support a call for new elections and an end to police violence. Over the days since, these have escalated across the country and a variety of industries. In, in the capital of Minsk, trolleybus drivers went on strike in protest at the detention of one of their colleagues at a protest. Workers at a sugar factory in Zhabinka have gone on strike, as have engineers at the Minsk tractor factory. <coughs> the authorities have not stood idle. Police vans and paddy wagons have been seen outside several premises. Arrests followed. On August 11th, Nikolai Zimin, the former president of Belarus's Mining and Chemical Workers Union, and Maxim Sereda, chairman of the Independent Miners' Trade Union, were sentenced for several days' imprisonment at a court in Soligorsk, where miners have been striking. In recent days, Lukashenko has dismissed protesters as sheep and pro provocateurs in the pay of foreign powers. In a conversation with Global Voices, a researcher who specializes in labor relations in Belarus cautioned against overestimating the strikers the scale of these strikes, but stressed that they were quite unprecedented and brave moves in the Belarusian context. Indeed, due to the internet block in Belarus during the election and the protests, it has been hard to establish the scale of these workplace protests, and as the country goes back online, the real scale has become more visible and it is significant. If striking workers are able to benefit from the National Strike Fund announced on August 13th, their numbers could grow larger still. Meanwhile, the number of businesses and enterprises whose workers are declaring solidarity with the opposition continues to grow. On the evening of August 13th, workers at the Minsk Municipal Telecommunications Network announced yet another strike. Right on. Strike, strike, strike. That's what workers do when they're very frustrated and at the end of their line. Yeah, this sort of thing looks like it's evolving into some kind of general strike, which will hopefully bring about big change in the country. And, like, this is a strike against <coughs> a despot, like someone who is holding on to power for, like, 26 years, I think it was, which is pretty intense. Yes, uh, okay, well... um. Good, good stuff. I'm, I'm glad, glad that's been included in there, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep you up to date. We'll keep uh, comrades up to date with that uh, struggle in uh, Belarus because it's um, a very important one, uh, you know. And uh, 
Yeah, watching workers uh, stand up, you know, collective action coming, sta- standing up and fighting back is uh, what we love to report on here on our Workers' Power. Right, so our next uh, story is attack on drilling rig in British Columbia, Canada. And this one's from uh, the Montreal Counter Information. Yeah, so this is a statement directly from the perpetrators of the attack. On August 3rd, in so-called Smithers, British Columbia, we attacked Vols Drilling Rig 4 using the accelerant in plastic bottles and fire starter cube method. After receiving word that the drill had arrived in Smithers, we departed from Prince George immediately. After arriving in Smithers and getting our bearings, we posted up at the park across the street from the hotel that the drill was parked at, and after gathering sufficient intel, a plan was developed and the decision to act in the early morning was agreed upon. After the device was planted and ignited, we immediately left back to Prince George via Highway 16. We believe that firm action is required to ensure that CGL does not drill underneath the Wedson Qua by whatever means necessary. Solidarity with our Haudenosaunee brothers and sisters facing off with the OPP pigs. No state militia sponsored industry on the stolen land that is Turtle Island. Right on, huh? Yeah, good stuff, eh? I like how they've uh, let us all know they've reported it themselves, eh? (laughs) This is what we do. So, solidarity uh, um, with our Haudenosaunee brothers and sisters. Facing off with the OPP pigs. Yeah, so that's actually a separate struggle that we reported on last week where they were blockading all a bunch of um, rocks, um, roads. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but this is a separate group of people who obviously we don't know the identities of because what they did was very illegal. Very, very illegal. (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, look, uh, there was... um, the um the I'll just use the general term mining industry is you know is is up for exploitation um all around the world um and uh, yeah this is um uh, good to see workers standing up and fighting back um I wish I wish that uh, we'd do it here a bit more in Australia because uh, there's something that's highlighted uh, I think it was last night I was just flicking around the grounds and. And there's a story going around where we are selling gas cheaper to overseas countries than what we sell it to ourselves. Right. Okay. Weird. Weird, you know. And 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 the, these companies get mining royalties, and we get little to no benefit. You know, they talk, oh, it's jobs, it's, it's this and that. No, it's 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 more about. Uh, uh, donations to the Liberal and Labor Party than what it is about anything else. So, yeah, uh, it's it's a struggle that happens all the way all around the world. Um, so, uh, good on those workers. Right. Oh well, uh, we haven't got many events to talk about, but I do want to talk about and um, well, something that's uh, I'm pretty sure that's ongoing out at Kangaroo Point every Tuesday. The unionists get together um, uh, at the pizza shop there, so hopefully they'll be there again tonight. Um, you can uh, go and, and uh, check that out at, down at. Uh, Kangaroo points, and um, yeah, yeah, hear about and uh, get involved with what uh, with what unions are up to and the like, and uh, yes, so that's about all, all we've got for for uh, um, for events. I'm sure sure there's be more around, but uh, we just haven't had time to re- to do the research. It's a lot of work to put this show together, uh, but we never ever miss Scallywag of the Week. And um, I've I've lost my sheet now. Oh, no, I don't even know. Oh, yeah, that's right. Now, um, Jackson, can you talk us through the uh, scallywag of the week? Sure thing. Uh, Sorry, I didn't have my sheet up either. You usually do scallywag. Okay, I'll go for it. University changes would see students who fail classes risk losing access to hex loans. Jade McMillan from ABC News. University students who fail more than half of their subjects will lose access to government loans and subsidies under changes announced by the federal government. 
The move is the move is part of a planned overhaul of the university system, which also results in major changes to student fees. Under the latest changes. Students who fail more than 50% of their classes after taking at least eight units will no longer be able to access a Commonwealth-supported place or a HEX help or fee help loan, meaning they will have to pay the full cost of their studies up front if they wish to continue. Shame. The Department of Education, Skills and Employment estimates it will affect around 2,500 students each year. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of comrades that are going to, you know, you'd hazard to guess that half of them at least are going to fall off Hmm. and and leave their studies. You know, that's a lot. You know, over 1,000 people each year falling off, nah, not good. The president of the National Union of Students, Molly Wilmont, criticised the changes, accusing the government of trying to incentivise success through fear of punishment. Limited access to study, financial instability, education quality, disability and the ongoing crisis of mental health in the student body are just some of the impediments to student success, she said. These are issues that are often unreported and receive inadequate support from tertiary institution or the government. Alison Barnes, the president of the National Tertiary Education Union, said no extra effort was being made to prevent students failing in the first place. This policy provides no extra funding to support students likely to fail. No extra staff will be employed to identify and monitor students and give them the help they need, she said. Community organiser and all-round great guy Dave Eden said that students shouldn't lose funding for failing as failing is an inherent part of learning and an entirely normal part of studying. We don't need another reason to defend this claim. Hey, great minds think alike, Dave. I was thinking the exact same thing, you know, like um, making mistakes is how you learn. So, uh, but, uh, and then because he is restricting access to education in the middle of an unemployment crisis and making education even more unnecessarily punishing, and I'll add in here, uh, this this is my contribution here, comrades, and the fact that he got a free university degree. Oh, yeah. He didn't pay anything. Not a cent. This scallywag. And the scallywag is Education Minister Dan Teen. What a grub. Grub. What a grub. Got a free education and then wants to deny it for everyone else just because they're having a little bit of trouble. Um, we, we looked at, we, uh, we listed some financial instability. You know, like, how often do we hear of students having a bit of financial instability? Yeah. You know, like, you know, how's your, is your finances stable, comrade? <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah. yeah. But no, still, but you know, like, I'm pay, sure. Paying, like, it's like the cheapest courses you can get are like nearly $4,000, which is just way too much for most working class people. And if, like, if they have one thing, like, if they have one time when they're having a bit of trouble and they fail more than half their classes, then they just basically lose access to higher education. And it's awful. They're, like, basically locked off from making a better life for themselves. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking at that number. The Department of Education, Skills and Employment estimates it will affect around 2,500 people. Sorry to hand on this, but I, I think that that's, a, that's an extraordinary number. And, and uh, we, if these measures are brought in place, uh, now that I think about it, all 2,500 of those people will finish their studies. That's it. They're done. Hmm. You know, like there wouldn't be many people that, that can all of a sudden, you know, they're not getting, you're not getting hex. And will you, from this... So you're getting hex. What once you once you're unavailable to hex, would you lose Oz study then as well? I don't know. <laughs> I know we need a bit more detail answer. in that. Hopefully, we yeah. can find some more detail. But uh, yeah, yeah. Imagine losing Oz study on the same. You know that. Uh, 
it's just uh, and that well well I mean I assume I assume if you if you're a student and you're I studies the Centrelink thing right yeah yeah I assume if you're if you're a student you would still have access to it but the fact is these people would no longer be students because they can't afford to pay for the tuition and therefore they lose access to that's right the Centrelink unless they go back onto mutual obligations I suppose. Right, uh, well, that's that's the show for us. Um, we better move on. We're already uh, chewing. We're going to chew 30 seconds into Brisbane lines, but uh, I'm sure they'll be all right with that. Max is waiting there patiently. He's got. He's going to inform you in, on what's happening um, in and around Brisbane and surrounds and, and, and across the continent. Uh, um, so I, I found um, this song, I thought I'd, 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 I'd dedicate it to our Scallywag of the Week. It's um, a new, brand new single from Kingswood. Um, and uh, the, the title of the track is You Make It So Easy. And Dan Teen, you make our Scallywag of the Week award so easy. And on that note, um, that's the end of four, four, uh, Workers' Power, 4 Z for another week, and uh, we will see you next Tuesday.